Cutting for Sign with Ron Cecil and Daniel Pinnerkline. The bad white men call him the devil. The Yavapai call him eyes like the sky. Hi, welcome to Cutting for Sign. Today's guest is Richard Hubbard. Richard is a men's group leader, Zen practitioner, martial artist, writer, and independent educator. Richard, in 2017, you began a journey in a men's work through Inside Circle, a therapeutic group in San Francisco that is led and intended by incarcerated men, but which is also open to the public. You yourself are a survivor of physical and sexual abuse and your childhood, and you struggled with substance abuse in the 1990s. You had several turbulent years culminating in a near-death experience that led you to Zen, to a Zen monastery where you took up formal practice. Uh, you spent five years in conservatory theater and have applied that training and the training in other modalities to help facilitate healing for others. You now work with several other organizations based in California, New York, and Massachusetts that assist men and women with empowerment and growth. You're dad, and you're the head of the Prevail System of Kenpo Jiu-Jitsu, a student of the mountains and rivers orders of Zen Buddhism and an avid explorer of human consciousness. Welcome, Richard Hubbard. So glad you could join us. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Well, we know each other uh, through our friend Jason, and now we're in a writer's group together. And you were a perfect stranger to me uh, probably up until six weeks ago. And since then, one of the most interesting things, if I could like go in down that whole list of like very interesting things, I'm, I'm sure we could rabbit trail down any one of those. And But what has really kind of hooked me from the very beginning is your experience in men's work in particular. And uh, so tell me how you got connected with, you know, whether it was inside or a different organization first, like, tell me what was the kind of the, the moment where you got on the slide, you put your hands across your chest and you just decided to like, let go and slide down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, the first real moment in my life where I, I kind of had that experience of, of, um, of needing to surrender myself completely to a process hmm. was really my coming to Zen, uh, which was about 20 years ago. And um, over the course of the last 20 years, I've, I've done a lot of different things. And uh, right around 2017, I had a pretty bad injury. Um, I broke my back. And uh, at that time, I was um, I was running a martial arts school as my primary vocation. And, uh, you know, I've always been one of those teachers who I love being on the mats um, with my students. And so I love training. And um, so I was I was on the mats all the time. Um, too much, really. Yeah. Uh, to, to, in retrospect, with hindsight being 2020. And um needed to have what what was really then the second spine surgery um i did a neck surgery a few years ago uh prior to that and um was really unable to do anything um was in the process of selling the dojo um you know and uh closing up that business and was really struggling internally and i was struggling spiritually i was battling depression and through my writing and through uh, reading and through my um, spiritual practice, I was really coming to the realization that there was still a lot of work that I needed to do uh, based around childhood trauma and things that I thought that I had dealt with, um, yeah. but that um, were still arising 
Yeah. And um, I didn't really know how to do that. There yeah. were, um, you know, I, I was fortunate in that, um, you know, I, I have a very loving and supportive family. Um, I have a good therapist, a good psychiatrist, yeah. um, but wasn't necessarily certain what the next step in that would be. And I was um, sitting in my uh, sitting in my room, getting ready to have surgery and feeling pretty sorry for myself. And I was looking for something to watch on Amazon. And I came across a documentary um, called The Work, directed by um, Gethin Aldis. And immediately I, I said, this looks really, really interesting. And so I watched it. And um, really, from just a few minutes in, I was completely hooked. And it was one of those experiences where I immediately connected to what was being done and said, um, this is what I need to do. And The Work, Richard, is the one with the prisoners, right? Yes. That that documentary. Yeah, I watched the trailer to that. Freaking incredible. <laughs> so when you were when you were experiencing um number one, you had a physical ailment. I mean, the neck and spine I mean, the spine injuries are are you know game changers for people. Like that can take sure. them out in a big way. Yeah. But you're so you were also experiencing some some anxiety and depression in there that you felt was linked to your childhood. Um, and you don't have to get into too much detail about that, but I talk to men about this almost on a daily basis. When you say linked to your childhood, did that feel, you can maybe describe it in general feelings. Did that feel like fear of stepping into a certain part of your adulthood or your masculine journey that felt tethered to something that had happened to you in the past? Did that feel like, unresolved unforgiveness or resentment uh, towards your caretakers or someone who had harmed you or all the above, or even something that I'm not quite putting my finger on. <laughs> sure. Um, all of the above. Yeah. And, and more um, <laughs> plus plus. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, for me, one of the ways that I have always um, connected with men is through uh, martial arts yeah. and through being on the mat. And I am a per very much a person of my physical body. And um, so dealing with pain, particularly um, uh, the pain that I was having as a result of this, um, these injuries, like proved very, very severe neuropathic pain, um, debilitating yeah. pain, um, was something that I had never really experienced before. And um, trauma is not just stored in our minds, trauma is stored in our bodies. That's right, yeah. And, um, you know, as, as we like to talk about it in Zen a lot, when, when people are learning how to sit, that the um, your body goes through releasing layers of tension, and as your body releases releases those layers of tension, all of those buried layers of tension have emotional and psychological resonances to them. Mm -hmm. And so you're not just say going through something that is you know uh, tightness in your shoulder or not in your back. Yeah. You're actually releasing the the physical resonances of past experiences. And um, are you familiar with the book, The Body Keeps Score? I am not. No, it's a it's, I'm surprised to hear that. Yeah, that's an incredible book. Too. It's a top seller on Amazon right now. And and uh, it's wow. very much to what you're saying right now. So keep going. Gotcha. Yeah, no, there, there's another book that's very similar. It's called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Manicum. Um, yeah. 
I'm familiar with that. So, My wife just read it. I have, I've not read it, but, I, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah, excellent yeah. book. Excellent yeah. book. Um, and so as I was going through um, really this new dimension of pain in my physical body, yeah. it was awakening a lot of the emotional resonances from past experiences that, um, you know, from, from a very traumatic childhood and, and uh, young adulthood that um, brought up for me things that I hadn't really thought about or addressed or worked with in a very, very long time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as those things kept coming up, uh, I realized that, you know, I needed to find a, a mechanism to deal with them. And that's what really took me out to, out to San Francisco. Um, yeah. you know, and a lot of it was that I was, um, I was in a position where I had an outlet for so long from my physical body, for my emotional health, for yeah. my, um, sort of, uh, psychological progression that was taken away um, in such an abrupt fashion and then replaced with um, a, a whole lot of, of physical pain. Yeah. And it was very jarring, jarring um, experience. I, guess, I, I guess can't imagine. I mean, going from Number one, the community and intimacy of martial arts, which we've talked about before on this podcast, like there's just really nothing like it being able to be safe with somebody and have all of those ex physical experiences that are both painful and joyful and all that stuff. Um, and then you have kind of the integrative modes of those things as well, because as you're physically moving your body, even emotions and, and things like that are also being integrated. Then you are injured. How fast from that injury to to the feelings of depression and the feelings of or or to, to depression and anxiety? Like how quick was that? Sure, um, pretty fast. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I um, I've been writing a bit about lately, but that really took me by surprise was the um, was the intensity and the scope of physical pain. Yeah. Um, you know, I I've had a lot of um accidents and injuries and surgeries and things over the years and um until i really experienced neuropathic pain i thought that i had an idea about what pain was what does neuropathic then, mean is that uh, neuropathic is yeah. directly to the nerve oh okay so yeah. there are there are lots of different types of pain there are there are um models that have you know six seven different sort of types of pain there's mm. um but uh, neuropathic pain is when there is direct pressure um or some sort of impingement like right on the nerve <sighs> itself gosh yeah and um it, it it the only way that i could describe it um it was actually worse with my neck mm. the only way that i could really describe it was imagine that um imagine that you just are having a blowtorch run up and down your arm constantly all the time and there's nothing you can do to shut it off. Um, and then, like, if for me, it was when I would start to fall asleep because I couldn't move. Um, I would start to fall asleep. I had to sleep sitting up. And as soon as I would start to doze off, um, it would be like somebody zapped me awake with a cattle prod. You know, my neck would move a little bit. I'd get a big shooting electrical pain. I would wake up. Yeah. And the pain itself is one thing. Um, and there are ways of managing that. Um, interestingly enough, opioid drugs and, and narcotics don't really work very well on neuropathic pain. Mm -hmm. um, 
the uh, I had a friend who described it in a pretty apt way. He said, you know, the the morphine or the Dilaudid or whatever it is they're giving you, it, it doesn't really take the pain away. It just puts enough psychological distance between you and the pain that you're mm. not going to stick the shotgun in your mouth. Whoa. Um, Whoa. And Richard, you know, this, can I, yeah. Can I ask you real quick? Uh, sure. I, I think, um, you know, thinking about kind of the theme of this podcast a little bit, I'm applying it to your story here. And at what point in time after you started experiencing pretty severe pain, did you take it in some way as a, a something that had to do with or that you decided was going to help you address something from the past? How did those two things start to link? Sure. Um, well, one of the side effects of, of, the, of pain like that um, is that you can't sleep. And if you can't sleep, you can't heal. And so for me, I went through um, a pretty serious um, period of about two weeks where um, I literally did not sleep at all. Wow. And um, and that's really worse than the pain because you get to a place where you you just go nuts. You go psychotic. Well, yeah, and it's so, like psychosis. Seriously. So I was having um, I was having very lucid kind of waking dreams. I was having memories. I was using my mind and a lot of breathing and a lot of meditative practices to try to manage the pain. Um, But, you know, I I could only do that for so long because I was just exhausted all the time. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of, during that process, um, psychological memories, resonances, dreams, um, hallucinations oh. that were coming up from my subconscious. Yeah. Um, and that really kind of that period put me in touch with the reality that, oh, there's a lot down there that I thought that I had dealt with a long time ago that is still there. And now that I am in this crisis mode, um, it's all kind of bubbling to the surface. Mm. I'm going to stop you right there because I think that someone who has spent a lot of time like yourself in doing those kinds of the work to deal with past traumas, past uh, blockages. So you're, you're meditating. I'm sure you were in some kind of process of forgiveness. I'm sure you were kind of, you were in therapy. You had all those other tools. You don't even know that those things are down there. I had an experience on psychedelics a while back where you know, resentment for my two, for my father and my stepfather were coming up and uh, that I didn't know even existed anymore. And, and I had gone through several different processes and times and moments of naming the things that I was mad about them for, of naming the, the things I was pissed off, writing letters, burning them, burying things, creating ceremony. And yet there I was in the desert on psychedelics for the purpose of having a spiritual journey and this stuff was coming out. And so I I think the reason I bring that all up is there sometimes is a precipitating event. And unfortunately for you, it was pain, severe pain and lack of sleep, which is sounds like its own psychedelic, you know, experience that is bringing, (laughs) is bringing this back up. So then you're what you, you get to, you open Amazon, like some things we all do every day, essentially, and you find this thing and the universe is giving you a signal. At what point in there are you like, I don't care about this pain or I'm rec- you were at this point, you were recovering from surgery, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So you're you're recovering from surgery and you're like, I gotta do this. Like, was it in that moment you were watching it? Um, yeah, yeah, it was. Um yeah, I was also in a place where um I needed to find this next direction for my yeah. life. I needed to find career 4.0, I guess it would be at <laughs> this right, point. Right. Um and uh and said, Well, you know, what am I gonna do? I'm I'm in a very privileged place yeah. um, where I can afford to um, invest some time and some some resources in starting a new career. Um, I, I guess maybe more of a life's work than just a yeah. career. And um, in going out to San Francisco and seeing the organization, the people who were working with it, the things that they were doing, and then going through that process myself. Can you take us um, to that moment when you get to San Francisco and you, you know, assumedly walk through the jail doors, you know, prison doors of a sure. place. Can you describe that? Yeah. So um, the, the program that I took part, part with in San Francisco was not um, in, uh, in a penitentiary. Okay. So the, um, the, this particular program grew up in uh, Folsom prison in the early nineties hmm. and has been going on there for, you know, all of this time. And a number of people inside of, of, different modality uh, he- healing organizations and men's work organizations have yeah. come in and out and had contact with that organization over the years. But um, it was in an office building. Mm-hmm. And uh, having seen the documentary, I had somewhat of an idea of, of what was going to happen, of, of the structure of the event and how it was going to unfold. But I really wasn't expecting all of the people who were in the documentary to be there. Huh. Um, and so I, I walked in, I registered, I started going around and meeting people. And the thing that I immediately noticed was like, um, everyone from the film is here. Mm. And, um, some of them are, um, yeah, I mean, some of them have served 20, 30 years and have been released. Some of them were on furlough and were coming in, you know, would work with the group for the day or for the weekend and then go back to prison. Oh my gosh. Um, when it was over, um, you know, there were um, people there who were not, um, who hadn't been incarcerated, but who were um, system impacted because of friends, family, um, right. other people in their lives who, who were. And, um, and the, the being able to sit in that place of safety and trust, very much like on a martial arts mat. Yeah. Um, where you, you're, you're doing something, you know, in martial arts, it's physically dangerous. And so you have to have that, um, that emotional trust. Um, here we're doing something that is emotionally dangerous. Um, you know, and so that, that trust and that safety has to be there as well. Um, so that was the first thing that hit me. I was like, oh, this is, this isn't a, you know, just because we are not in the prison, um, working with incarcerated people. Um, doesn't mean that this is a sort of light form of yeah. uh, of the work at all. So let me ask you a, a, a couple more questions around this. What was it about watching these guys do the work? I mean, you were seeing a process that I assume people were feeling an emotional release from. I've only seen the doc, the uh, trailer, which is super powerful. That what they were really doing in the in the movie, I'm assuming, is that they were creating a new reality that you wanted a part of, right? 
And that new reality was some form of spiritual and emotional healing. What was that reality that you saw? And can you name it? Like, I want, like, my life currently looks like this. These old traumas and wounds are coming up. What this film, the work is showing me is that a reality can look different. And it looks like. Hmm. It looks like one in which um, in which I can tell my story mm. and own my experiences without fame, uh, shame, without fear, without guilt, um, without a lot of the unnecessary, painful baggage that goes mm-hmm. along with burying it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was watching men talk about and address things that um, were very much in line with things that I had experienced but that I had never talked about. And then, and then, and then, sorry, and them doing it in front of what struck me about that was that I would think that the stakes are pretty high when you're expressing vulnerability in front of, and in an environment of inmates. And I understand that maybe the cut of inmates that were in that group, maybe they're all understanding of that, but, uh, and, and, you know, maybe they're not going to use it against a person if they come forward and express emotion or share something. At the same time, they're still in an environment, you know, 99% of the time that is potentially threatening uh, in that they would use things against you or not you, but, you know, the inmates sharing. My point being the fact that they were sharing and as honestly as they, they were and as and as uh, emphatically and in cases dramatically, it just, I was like, the stakes are so high with these guys, you know, um, to be able to take the walls down that they got to have in their, nor- in their normal everyday life. Like that's an additional set of walls that we all don't have. And they're ripping that shit down and then j- diving through. And I would think that that would be pretty fucking inspiring and a very much a leading, uh, creating of an incredibly safe space, uh, I would think for people like us, maybe like yourself, it would be a wide berth when it comes to, no, that's the wrong word, but you know, you would have a lot of freedom to be like, okay, if these guys are doing it in this situation, I certainly can. Was there an experience of that or am I off on that? No, I I think that's absolutely right. Um, You know, you, the, the way that the structure works is that there's an opening circle that happens at the beginning of the weekend. Uh And then, um, there are breakout groups of about 10 people and inside it, 10, 12 people. And inside of that, there are three people who are skilled facilitators. Um, and then you go into a room and everybody gets a chance to, to do their work. And there is a container, there is a, a format that is set. Um, and so a lot of the time initially is set creating this very safe container this very safe place where um, confidentiality is maintained, where there is no judgment, where we are very, very cognizant and conscious of the words that we use and very, very mindful of how we interact with each other while the work is being done. Um, and the guides do a, do an outstanding job of, of making sure that those protocols are, are enforced, that they're in place. Um, and so for me to see these people who, uh, you know, I, if I didn't know um, 
I would have never known if I just met this person. Yeah. Um, that this was someone who took someone's life and spent 30 years in prison for it. Yeah. And now they're here holding space for me to speak about and process yeah. things that Sorry. I have never spoken about in my life. Um, you know, was just, it was inspiring. Yeah. And um, really, I, it was, it was transformative for me. You know, there was a quote that I was reading the website yesterday of this. It's called uh, out. It's called inside out. Is that correct? Uh, inside circle. Inside circle. Thank you. Yeah. And was it created by Pat Nolan? Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So there was this quote by him and he served a bunch of time and then he died. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So he said, I'm just a dude doing a life sentence. One of the countless thousands shelved away in institutions statewide who will probably die here on the inside. I accept this, but just because a guy is serving life doesn't necessarily mean life is over. The quality of our existence, even under the worst conditions can still be determined by us and how we approach this road we are on. And that right there is one of my fundamental uh, I would say beliefs, except it's like a fledgling belief. It's not like I can, I live and embody this belief, but it's like, you know, it's being watered and just to hear it in a different way from, you know, we, we, Ronald and I referenced the book. Uh, um, I keep blanking on, it. I'm sorry, Victor Frankl's book, um, Man's Search, uh, Man Search for Meaning. Thank you. And um, him being in, in Auschwitz. And then there's another book um, by a Russian guy uh, who did the same thing. And right, what they arrived to is exactly what this guy arrived to, which is the buck stops with me. You know, I'm the one that decides my experience here to some extent. And I, from what I understand from this guy and Victor Frankl, it's like to a great extent and just the fact that they can do that it's like but what does that look like right <laughs> like for victor frankel to arrive to that he had to spend how many years in auschwitz and other camps you know and this is kind of like one of those situations where we're fostering environments in our life you're fostering you're choosing to go to this place so as to start to create a different i don't know how i would put it i'm curious how you'd put it, but you know, Ronald said earlier, you're, um, in a little bit of different way, but like you're creating a new way to live and you can say it as bringing stuff up and dealing with it, or you can say, I'm changing my perspective. Like, can you flesh out a little bit more of what, how you changed in those, in those experiences? While you're thinking about that, Richard, something that was coming up for me about the statement you made why you wanted to go which was you wanted a safe place to tell your tell a part of your story that you had never told before mm -hmm. and i thought of i have a i have a, a degree in new testament literature so i studied the new testament in greek and and other ancient languages and one of the phrases that i keep coming back to over and over is written by an author named james who wrote confess your sins to one another and you'll be healed it's not exactly what it says. That's how it's been written. Really, you could probably say something more like, tell your story. And in telling your story, you find healing. And that, I think, is something that we're often very afraid of doing, of telling our story. We have values attached to ourselves because of hurt we have experienced because of hurt that we have caused, because of 
watermarks or benchmarks in our life that we have not achieved. And those things become these inner weight belts that hold us down in the depths of our sub, of our conscious and subconscious, where we walk into a room and we feel less than, where we walk into um, relationship dynamics, where we don't feel like we can show up all the way, whether that's parenting or romantic or friendship. I love what you, I mean, you nailed it. I think that is often something we bump into is, there's parts of me that I've never shared with anyone because of X, Y, and Z. And you can name some form of fear, guilt, and shame around those things. Mm -hmm. The other thing that really stood out to me was the protocols of safety for the necessary vulnerability that's required to tell one's story. And I love how they had those facilitators who've been trained in those modalities who know even though I, I think you said language or words that were allowed or not allowed to say, I think that's really important as well. Hmm. Um, I, I didn't want to move too quickly on from those things. because those, those are really, really big um, elements in a person's healing journey. And I love hearing that what's going on for you. So, you know, jump back into you show up, you see these men uh, who are, I mean, when you said that some of them were on furlough, I mean, that is an astounding experience to know they're not getting out for themselves, but to know furlough that the... Was, what's furlough mean? Sorry. Uh, so the, furlough is like a, like a temporary parole. It's when you're, um, you're incarcerated, but you will be let out for... Typically, it's a period of 24 to 48 or 72 hours oh. um, supervised. Uh, typically, so that you can, for example, go and attend one of I these see. events, okay, um, gotcha. things like that. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I'll stop. You know, gas. You're talking too much, but <laughs> tell us, <laughs> tell us at this point, like you're in it and you start the conversations in these small. Ronald these and I both ask you five minute questions, so you got ten minutes of questions. To I just like to hear myself talk. <laughs> <laughs> um. So uh, I'm trying to pick up on both of the threads here and just kind of uh, formulate, you know, how I want to, how I want to speak to that question. Um, so the way that the, um, the way that the format goes is that um, typically there's a prompt that is given and, um, and then each person will work with that prompt to get started. And um, we'll go around in a circle. And as one person kind of starts, then the role of the facilitator is to um, ask probing questions and leading questions to get the person who's doing their work to really drill down into what is important. It's very easy for people to get start circling off and getting kind of off track, um, particularly as a defense mechanism. And so, uh, you know, the facilitators there to really help you um, stay on target and stay honed in on what it is that you came there to get. And uh, eventually, in my experience, is that each person in the course of going through that hits some sort of a major um, pocket of emotion. Um, or some experience where they they have a breakdown, and um, and then 
once that breakdown happens, once that sort of shell cracks and the expression that comes from that is allowed to, um, to be present, to just come forth, um, to manifest itself, then there is a, um, an exercise, some sort of a, um, a task that is given to the person doing their work. And um, so it, it typically is some sort of a challenge that has a physical component to it. And the person is invited to take up this task as a symbol of overcoming or addressing, standing with, facing, whatever their piece of work is about, whatever their struggle is. Mm. And uh, the group then comes together in order to facilitate that person to do that. You'll see a, a bit of that in the documentary if you if you watch it. Um, and then afterwards, there is a um, what's called feedback. And feedback round is, um, you know, one person is done doing their work and they've been supported by the community. They've been given this open space to use and to manifest what they need to. Um, and now it's time for everyone else in the circle to speak to that person's experience and what it has brought up for them. So it's it's not feedback in the sense of constructive criticism or advice or you know any, anything like that. It's feedback in the sense of um, speaking to another person's experience and talking you, about how it resonates with your own experience. Can you share yeah. what you brought up? Um, yeah, so my first, my first time there, um, I dealt with an, an episode when I was about 10 years old, uh, where my father, um, had a psychotic break and, um, killed our dog with a machete and oh, then came geez. after my mother with it. And, um, she was able to talk him down. And after he passed out, um, she gathered all of us up on the oldest of five children, um, and took us to a battered women's shelter. And that was really the, um, there were a lot of things that were wrong with my father and with my family like prior to that, but that was really a uh, flashpoint moment. And that really started a two, about a two and a half year um, experience of him and his psychosis and his physical and, and um, emotional and psychological abuse that um, sort of culminated with my family um, using battered women's shelters as a kind of underground railroad to escape him and to move, um, you know, many states away and sort of restart our lives free of So him. you, you essentially told that story in the circle with the, um, inmates and, or, or did they, or did that take a while for you to recognize that that's what you wanted to talk about? Like, can you just flesh out how that looked and what their response was? And sure. Um, so my, um, and I, and I just want to make this clear, um, since we're kind of, we're digging in a, a little bit here now, yeah. you know, one of the rules of the circle is confidentiality. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know I, how I that can works, speak so. to, I can speak to my, I, I, I'm sure. So, you know, I, yeah. I'm speaking in this because this is my experience and I will speak yeah. to my experience, yeah. but yeah. I'm not going to talk about anybody else's work. That's and are you allowed can, to do that? Like, can you share your work? Yes, absolutely. You can. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so, and I just wanted to make it clear that Thank I am you. mindful of that. Yeah. Of that. Um, yeah. So I was one of the last ones to go because I was the, you know, I was kind of hiding, I think, for, for a good deal of it. And uh, wow. 
you know, so uh, uh, Eldra, who was the facilitator in the in the group that I was with, um, you know, turns to me. He's like, "Okay, it's your turn." You know, what? Why are you here? You know, what did you come here <laughs> yeah, for? Yeah, right. And um, and really, in the same way that I had when I um, was asked the same question um, by the Roshi of the monastery when I showed up uh, in huh. twenty years before that, you know, bedraggled and and wet and um, you know, looking much, much worse for the wear. Um, I didn't really have a, a solid, clear answer. What I had was an aggregate set of experiences that were just, um, yeah. that needed to be worked through. And right. so I just kind of went into a synopsis of my early life, and he just keyed right into pretty much right away wow. wow steering me towards and then when that um when that particular event when i got to that event that's where he just kind of cut me loose and um and let me run wow. and uh and i was i was an absolute mess in um, in the in the therapy or i'm sorry would you call it the the, the group how the would circle. i refer to the circle the, the circle yeah circle's a good word. that's where you became a mess is that what you're saying Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, everyone pretty much going into that environment and doing that work. hits a point where they, um, they break down, you know? And so, and I broke down pretty, pretty early in that process in, um, you know, in, in going through that. Um, yeah. And that was really, you know, it's something that I have mentioned in passing to a handful of people. Um, in a very casual way or in a way that is um, kind of ancillary to some other point um, so that I can just kind of brush past it. Um, but it's typically one of those things where as I get to know people and they ask about my life or my my um, upbringing, you know, that I just, I, I, I have little cover stories, you know, that I just use to yeah. brush past those things so that we don't have to talk about that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, it was really, I think, the first time in my life that I actually sat down and allowed myself to fully express and feel and own the feelings of, of anger and terror and shame and pain that um, were associated with that experience. And um, I got on the plane coming back from San Francisco. And I had very, very vivid dreams coming coming back on the plane. And it was for me, um, my, you know, my liminal mind was just so overloaded. And everything was coming from my intuitive, from my my subconscious. And it was really just this feeling of um, I'm oh, you know, I'm I'm gonna be 50 years old very soon, and I'm running out of time. You know, these events are my life. They're my story. And not only that, they are things that if they are told and handled and dealt with with care can really help a lot of other people, Um, especially not make the mistakes that I did as a young man, um, not receiving, you know, the the proper tools or care to deal with these experiences. but I need to get on that. And so what uh, what that that said to me, what that really spoke to me was um, that I found 
this next phase of my life. I've found the calling for this next thing that I need to do. Um, and so I came back to the Northeast and I started to make contact with other people who were doing this sort of work out here in the Northeast. And um, then also had a number of people, um, some students of mine from, from martial arts, friends, acquaintances, who just saw that I was getting involved in this sort of work and were reaching out and saying, um, hey, do you do that? Like, what is that about? Is there a place that we can do that? Is there, you know, you know where can we do that? And so pretty soon it beca I became aware that um, we needed to develop a circle here um, to, to serve, you know, some of those people. And so did that. But this is one of those things where um, I, and I am just particularly biased because of my set of experiences, um, I think that the world needs a lot more of this. And I think that men need a lot more access to tools like this. And so right now I am just, I'm trying to, through the writing of, of a book and um, working with these circles and these groups, just trying to gain as much skill and as, ex as much experience to bring this yeah. to as many people as I can in the amount of time that I've left. It really seems like there's an, I don't know if awakening is not quite the right word, but Boy, I've seen a lot of uh, in 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 uh, movies, in shows, uh, in documentaries. Um, talking with people, hearing Ron, some of his work. You know, there's a lot of men out there who are down to talk about their life and their like softer spots and their 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 tender spots. I guess is what I mean. They're like, and it's almost like. I don't. I don't want to say it's normal because I don't know everyone who's out there. But um, it sure is nice to hear um, that and, and to see like these alpha alpha male prisoners who are just like um, I've never been in prison and I've never been to a prison, so I don't mean to speak as if I know who they are. But you know, just from the ideas I have about prisoners, to see them doing that, I, I just I feel like the the leaders are out there, the people are out there on every level doing this work, showing the way how to do this work, and probably every man out there can do th this work of expressing themselves, feeling, communicating vulnerably, digging in, being in the trenches, finding a way to get it out. And I, it's just amazing. It's amazing, man. Thank you so much for sharing this. This is great. A couple of questions um, about your experience back back in that room and in that circle. Um, curious to the physical exercise they had you do when you begin to tell your story. Um, and the reason I'm curious about that is because I think that there is a, a component of physicality that's required to help exercise our, uh, past traumas, our emotions into then integrate those two things. So what was that? physical exercise like for you you could, and by the way because your yeah. confidentiality maybe it's proprietary i don't know like share what is necessary share what seems right sure um well and i'm gonna i'm gonna tell the longer version um because this ties in so when i was um when i was teaching martial arts uh one of the one of the systems that we taught is something called fast defense and it was a um, it was a program of um, of stress inoculation. So it was adrenal stress training, where you would put somebody through a um, a set of physical um, and verbal assaults, and uh, in order to get them highly adrenalized, 
and then you would have them um, respond against uh, a trained attacker in a big suit mm -hmm. so that they can um, they can actually hit um, full speed, full power anywhere they want. Um, yes. And the role of the person in the suit is to really, um, you know, is to set them up for success, but to really allow them to act from that very, very deep place of um, self-preservation. And for many people who came into the program from places where they were acting out of traumatic experiences mm -hmm. also. Um, mm -hmm. And that was amazing work to do. And there's once again, there's a it's a big set of protocols around it because you know you you have to you ha you have to keep everybody safe. But going into um, San Francisco, watching some of the other people do um, do their work, a lot of the exercises were similar to that. There would be somebody holding a shield that someone would have to hit. Huh and over and over again or there would um there would be a wall of people with linked arms that someone has to push their way through in order to get to another side um there would be um you know someone held underneath a blanket that is held wow. to the ground by you know 12 people um you know and exhorted to escape um and once again, in the same way that um, we do in martial arts training, and I know you both have experiences, so you understand the idea of really, really um, pushing someone and forcing them to work very, very hard, but at the same time, making sure that they succeed. Um, so I watched a lot of people um, over, you know, not just those experiences, but, but other, other events like this work with um, physical challenges, invitations, that were centered and focused around allowing them to take out physical aggression on something in a safe way. Um, my invitation was different um, because my work really centered around um, trust relationships with my father, with my mother, um, and lack of, of care in being able to um, treat and deal with those in a constructive manner afterwards. Um, you know, walking around as a young person, ADHD, PTSD, um, not a lot of tools to cope. Um, the challenge that was given to me was, was kind of exactly the opposite. So for me, they had me, um, everyone created a tunnel with their bodies. And I was invited to um, lay stomach down on the floor and crawl through this tunnel of bodies um, with uh, everyone sort of keeping their weight down on me to make it so that I really had to, had to pull myself you know, across the room from one end to another. And the symbolism was of a rebirth, of being um, sort of born anew. And um, at the end, you know, when I emerged from that tunnel of bodies, there was, um, you know, th there were two of the facilitators, man and a woman were there, um, speaking encouraging words, splashing water on my face, allowing me to just occupy that very vulnerable child place 
where I could be supported and um, and feel loved. Wow. And then the whole group came together. Every everyone um, typically will will um, if it is okay. Um, there's always permission ask, but um, we'll we'll put their hands on the person who needs support. And um, and that and that was it. You know, I mean, that was the physical invitation for so, me to manifest after my work. Yeah. When um, I remember reading about that in some of your work, uh, and I thought that that was something that everyone in that uh, circle went through. But you're saying that they have a different physical sort of um, aspect they bring to each individual person based on Correct. what that person's sharing. Yeah. Wow. That's next level, man. That's amazing. Yeah. That's almost like yeah. perform not performance art, but it's like there's a real creative uh, aspect to that, I guess. How would you describe it? I, I agree. Um, I think that... I'm just going to throw out some supposition. Um, I think that the the environment that this program grew up in, um, the people there, there was such a a variety of experiences and different traumas and um, issues that needed to be worked with, and there was a lot of time for the for them to think about it and to work with it and to um, hone and refine a lot of that. So the sense that I got still, even after, you know, many, these couple of years that still being a neophyte, really, um, myself, the sense that I got was that um, there was a tremendous depth of skill for the facilitators. You know, they, they've yeah. kind of seen it all. Yeah, you know, yeah, and they see somebody who needs something, and there is a very, very deep, large bag of tools that they yeah. have to go into yeah. <laughs> in order to meet somebody where they are. I mean, I don't mean to make light of it. It's just that I, I could see a facilitator look at it and they go, oh, yeah, this guy needs the human like birth canal, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. I, I thought it was um, <laughs> like probably to you felt a little bit um, like you probably there was a part of you. I'm, this is a guess that would have felt more at home with a physical exercise with mm. something associated with force or strength or something like that. And I love that the facilitator saw right through that. And I'm going to get, I'm going to make a big (laughs) stretch Richard here and say like, there might've even been some part of you who went into martial arts to try to, you know, make up for the feeling of vulnerability that you had as a young person, as a child, you know, something like that. I mean, that's, that's a stretch. That's a big assumption on my part. Uh, I'm sorry, what'd you say? That's very true. I said, absolutely. It's very true. There's a big part of that. Yeah. And so the facilitator then goes, no, I'm taking that, that, that tool that you got that crutch away from you immediately. And we're going to go right back to the vulnerability of the place that the primary place that every human needs to find safety, which is their caregivers right as they're being born, right at, at that 
pivotal moment of need where we are the most vulnerable we will ever be in our entire life right at birth. Going through that, I was thinking about how hard it feels when I'm rolling with somebody who's heavier than me and they know how to make themselves heavier mm-hmm. and they put all their weight on my chest or on my body or on my back. And it's like, it's like, I don't know how, how I'm going to breathe. Like, I don't know when that next breath is going to come through. That's what I was imagining as you were going through the tunnel of people and they're putting their weight on you and making it difficult for you to get through there. But then the experience of having the male and female archetypes receive you, cleaning you, encouraging you. I, I mean, my, what was going through my mind as you were describing yeah. that is like, how much time you got to do all this? <laughs> because, because that's not something you want to like rush through. And yeah, and, good question. Yeah. You know, the, so, um, so there's, there is a, uh, so these outside circle weekends, and they call them outside circle because they yeah. are not inside of the prison. Okay. Um, so these outside circle weekends, mm. they're weekend um, uh, retreats, basically. So um, there is a an opening circle on Friday night, and then um, typically people will stay after on Friday night to uh, to do additional work um, if they want to. So informally. Um, and then Saturday, all day Saturday and all day Sunday um, are just devoted to people doing their work. So um, in my experience, nobody was ever um, rushed in anything. You know, some people took two hours, some people took three or four. Um, Whoa, you know, to do to do one, their you know, one thing to do a piece of work. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. How long so, did yours take? So. I took about, let's say about two and a half hours. So you, you had the un, undivided attention of all of the other people there for two and a half hours. Yeah. That's amazing. That alone is a, is a healing yeah. a gift. Yeah. Healing. I mean, from the, you yeah. know, from the, from a point of, okay, you know, we, we come back from a break from the last person who's done yeah. their work. We yeah. go around again. <laughs> Somebody goes, they do their physical piece, everybody has feedback, mm. um, you oh, know, the wow. person gets to respond, then you have a bathroom break, and then you come back, you reset. So, yeah, yeah, probably about, about two hours. Can you, sh- can you share, uh, and again, just you're monitoring yourself as far as if I'm asking questions that are to uh, breach confidentiality, but can you share at least in, in vague terms um, what some of the feedback was that you got? Yeah. Um, that's an interesting. I, I think sometimes I why, why I think that's important is because sometimes when we want to tell our story, what we're afraid of like is going, Holy shit, dude. Your story's crazy. Like I can't. You should feel shame about that, right? Yeah, I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, you know, and part of the, um, you know, we we start with kind of three rules. There's intention, commitment, and container. Mm. Um, you know, we, the intention is to do the work and facilitate. You know, everybody else to be able to do their work mm. in a safe place. You know, the the commitment is to tell the truth, to be present. Um, you know, and then we have this container. You know, all of that creates this this container, and so one of the um, one of the uh, precautions, one of the the agreements 
um, is that we don't um, we don't offer advice. Yeah, we don't speak critically um, when we're doing work. We speak from the I and not the collective we or the right. you. Um, mm. So feedback is really about um, listening to you do your work brought up for me. I felt like. Yeah. Um, so there is really no, mm. as long as people are holding the precautions of the container, um, and certainly if they if there's a little slippage, the facilitator will interject and say, hey, yeah. let's try to keep this in a, um, you know, in this particular direction. But um, generally, the feedback that I got was... Um, was supportive. It was a lot of people just saying, hey, I want to give you a hug. And I feel really grateful for um, being able to be in this group of people that allowed you to experience this and share this finally. Um, you know, so that that's really what it was a lot of. Yeah. Yeah. So after you leave that weekend, you're back on the airplane, headed back across the country. Long haul flight. That's a big one. Yeah. Um, Thanks to Boston. What? Thank you, darling. Uh, what did um, that feel like in, in the sense that so you you went to San Francisco hoping for some kind of feeling, hoping for some kind of transformation? On the way, and I, and I know they never are the same, right? Like our expectation reality. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So tell me about your reality on the way home. Like, how did you feel? You're, you, because then that, those feelings then led you to more work, more participation, more facilitation. Yeah. You're shining so bright, talking about it so well that your students are going, hey, Richard, we want to do this too. So, but let's start with the feeling. What were, what were those feelings you're experiencing on the flight home and the next day? And I'm sure even as you were talking about processing with your wife, your kids, your family, your friends. Well, that's when you were saying you were having the lucid, uh, lucid experiences too, right? That was that flight. Yeah. I mean, I was having, um, I was having some very, very vivid dreams and, um, of past events, past people, things in my life. Um, I think it was really a lot of um, what came out of that that weekend was a big, messy outpouring of all of the tangled threads of my life that um, that were that that have not been attended to. So. I'm going to tell a story real quick. So one of my, um, my first Zen teacher, a uh, man named John Dido uh, Lurie, he uh, passed away of, of uh, lung cancer in 2009. And uh, when he was sick, he was sitting with one of his students and they were talking about, you know, just a... a an MRI or an X-ray, you know, during the cancer. And, um, and he said to the student of his, he said, um, you know, it's not the lung cancer that kills us. It's the unattended karma. And the meaning of that 
at least as I took it and still take it, is that every little thing that we do unmindfully, without attention, you know, every little cigarette that it's just like, oh, I'm going to take another puff. I'm going to take another puff. I'm going to go outside and have another cigarette. It's all just karma that is not attended to. So things that in our lives that just kind of float around like a little free radical, you know, interacting with things. Um, and I've always thought of that and I've always carried that with me. Is this question of how do, how do I attend to my karma? And so coming back, what really, really came up for me was that I have an insane amount of unattended karma <laughs> in my life, even with all of the work that I've done and all of the efforts that I have taken um, to be who I am now as opposed to somebody else, there's still a lot of unattended karma. Yeah. And so um, what I really, you know, there was this just big explosion of all of this messiness that is my life. And um, I said to myself, well, I'm going to start picking at the threads of this in order to start straightening them out mm. and attending to some of this karma that has sat here for so long unattended. I feel like we could probably keep talking for two hours, five hours more. I, I've like yeah. as you're talking more, it's just making more keeping me more and more yeah. curious about your experience. But I want to I want to give you a platform a little in a moment here to talk about uh, some things and answer some more questions. Um, what's what's coming across to me, Richard, is how understated your healing journey has been. You know, you're talking about these very dramatic things, but I, I'm seeing somebody, I'm looking at somebody on a screen whose reality is very different from where they started. You know, you and I are both from the Southwest and and not too far apart in age. And and that gives me, um, informs me of a, of a, not, a not a fun reality <laughs> where he started. And then the, the stepping stones to get you there, the underground train of women's shelters does not sound pleasant. Uh, but now I see a man who's um, a, a big success in a lot of ways, especially around his family. Um, and that is something as a father, we experience stuff, the traumas, the neglect, the abuse. That at a certain point we say, this does stop with me. I am not going to carry this on to my kid. Uh, they are not going to experience the same things I'm experiencing, and we 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 and we yet we don't want to lord those things over our kids. Like you've got it so easy, kiddo. You know your dad did. You know went through this, this, and this. You don't have no idea how easy it is for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you if you <laughs> if you go through something really hard and your yeah. kids are nowhere nowhere fucking near going through something like that, yeah. it's like your job is you're, you're not continuing the cycle. But then you're right. There could be the other thing that comes around, and then they can kind of <laughs> resent you for it in their own <laughs> right. way. So how how yeah. are you as a dad navigating these waters with your kids who are who are older now? It's a really good question. Um, but one of the things that I noticed um, was that um, right around right around the time that my kids got the age that I did when a lot of these events happened, 
um, I developed this almost, um, kind of, I don't want to call it a knee-jerk reaction, but I developed this kind of aversion to being around them. Um, and it was, it was an interesting thing to watch wow. my mind kind of go through this process. Dang. And I knew why it was. Um, you know, it was you know during this period of time that it's like, oh, I'm in the age range where my father lost his fucking mind. Oh, my kids are in the age range right. that I was mm. when I experienced these events. And so um, there was a very, very big part of me emotionally, psychologically, that wanted to um, withdraw and isolate from my children and my family. Um, and that certainly is a, and, and that is, I, generally speaking, a, a defense mechanism that I have right. is, um, you know, rather than, rather than hurt someone or complicate things, I would just step back and remove myself. And um, so it was interesting for me to watch my mind and my heart sort of go through that process. And it was difficult for my kids to understand what I was struggling with and why I was struggling with it. And they still don't know very much. Um, and I have my, my, um, my oldest daughter knows my, my, she's 24. My middle daughter is uh, 16 and she's kind of oh. at this place where she knows that something pretty crazy went on and, you know, that she doesn't have a grandfather on, you know, dad's side. And, um, you know, but she ha and I have told her because she's very precocious. I've told her, you know, if you want more information, just come to me and ask, and uh, we can have that conversation when you want to. But she has um, largely been like, no, I don't need to know. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't need to know. You know, and, and uh, I'm like, you know what? That's fine because yeah, that's sure. a, yeah. it's a it's a hard. Um, you know, thing for me to talk about too, but uh, no, I'm sorry. And Go ahead. I might, no, it's okay. I might've missed. It's a detail you probably said that I just missed is taking in a lot of information. Um, did your dad died? Is that correct? Um, no, he did not. He um, did not. Oh, okay. No. So that yeah, was a point. Um, sorry. Go ahead. I, yeah, no, 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 no. I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to talk about him or where he is or sort of anything about him or sure. Yeah, sure. He, uh, what he does, but he, um, I have not seen him in, well, I'm 47, so I haven't seen him in, uh, what, 35 years? Yeah, 35 years. Yeah. And um, he he is alive. Um, shortly after I got married, so my wife and I have been together uh, for almost 20 years. And... Um, you come back so, to your computer so we can your the microphone picks you up a little bit more. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry about this. Excuse That's me. okay. So um my my wife and I have been together for uh 20 years, just about 20 years. And um he actually called me right after I want to say probably around 2003 or 2004. I think that my um my wife was either pregnant with our middle daughter or, or she had, she, my middle daughter was an infant, was very young. And um, it's right around there, maybe 2003 to 2005. I don't remember exactly when it was. And um, I had three phone calls and shared a handful of emails with him. 
And that was enough for oh, me wow. to um, for me to ascertain that not a lot had changed in him mm. and that he was not oh my gosh. Wow. in a place where he was was ready to take responsibility for wow. the things that he had done. And he wanted to have a relationship me, with me, but he wanted it on his terms. Mm. And um, mm. so I, uh, I called up the rest of my family and we sat down and had a conversation about it. Um, and, you know, when, when these things were going on, um, when I was growing up, my, I'm the oldest of five and most of my siblings were just too young to really know what was going on. So they grew up um, with the same financial hardships and struggles. You know, when, when we finally escaped, my mother had to raise five children by herself, start her life over essentially in a place where she didn't know anybody. Um, she had no education. She had no real work experience. Um, so, you know, we were on welfare and, and public assistance and, um, you know, and so, you know, they know what it was like to grow up poor and, um, you know, and uh, without a father and in a in a not not so good situation, but they they were too young to really experience a lot of the abuse directly. Um, so the conclusion that I came to uh, after this meeting with my family was I don't I don't want any contact with him, um, and I certainly yeah. don't want him around my family. There and you so uh, you know, everyone in the family made their own decision about how they wanted to contact or whether they wanted to contact him or not. Um, and I won't speak to their choices or their experience, sure. but, um, you know, I, uh, I do know that he is alive and I'm glad that he has respected my yeah. wishes to, um, and not tried to insert himself in, uh, in my, my family's life at all. Well, well I've got a couple, uh, really one last question for you before we've got to go. And, and that is, sure. <clears throat> there's Daniel and I do this for what, what we call the one. The one person who is listening and is identifying with your experience so strongly that they are compelled to take action at the end of this conversation. And they are really wondering, what do I do next? How do I get what Richard has gotten? So where do, where do they go, Richard? Like, where, what website do they look up? What phone number do they call? Who do they reach yeah. out to? What do they do? Because somebody somebody needs to go through that birth canal, hit that shield, go through that yeah. you know group of people or something, whatever their whatever their exercise is. How do they get there? I can only speak through for my own experience. Yeah. Um, I hit a point in my life where I realized that if I didn't find a way to live that the pain was just too great and I was going to kill myself. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing that saved my life was saying, hey, I'm going to give this Zen Buddhism thing a try. I'm going to go um, do some residential training in a monastery, and I'm actually going to practice examining my own mind and this thing that I call myself. <laughs> and for me, it worked. Um, it completely altered um, my ability to live, and um, none of this other stuff would be possible, um, really, if I hadn't 
done that if I had not found that, if I hadn't begun that journey and that practice. Um, and, and that was what got you through the pain. I'm sorry, just real quick, the end yeah. of this, the pain story, because you don't appear to be in the same, anywhere near the same level of pain. Did you have surgeries? Was it the Zen um, Buddhism so, that did it? Yeah. Just real no, quickly. No, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a sort of a timeline here. Um, um, I came to Zen in, at the in 2000. Um, my uh, in my spinal injuries were in 2013 and 2017. Okay. So you know my 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 Zen practice certainly helped with my ability yeah. to work through those injuries. But um, what when I when I say pain, I meant the the oh. psychological pain of how, how fucked up and how much of a mess my life was um, <laughs> as see, a young man at 27 years old, you know, or at the turn of the century, um, trying to make sense of my life and all of these, these feelings and really just not wanting to be alive anymore. Um, I see. So for people who find themselves in similar situations, you know, what I would say is that each one of us carries around a very, very intimate desire for connection, for um, to be seen, to be heard in some way. And how that manifests is different for every person. Um, it's one of the things that is really cool just about us as human beings is we're, we're so different. And so for me, it was saying to myself, I'm going to commit to a practice that is going to train me to reconcile the reality of my mind and my experiences in my life. And there were kind of two phases of that. There was coming to Zen and then coming to the men's work. Um, if somebody's really in crisis, what I would say is reach out to the nearest thing that you have. And often that will guide, you know, because the things that we reach out for and that we gravitate to, that we connect to, we do for a reason, because there's something in our mind, there's something in our lives, there's something in our experience that is drawn to that, that is speaking from that or to that. Um, but for the people who are looking for to find something maybe a little bigger um, directionally, there are a lot of organizations out there for men's work. Um, there are a lot of places, um, spiritual practices that um, will speak to any number of people. Um, there's a terrific organization called uh, the Mankind Project that um, uh, a mentor of mine, a man named Bill Wick, has been involved with for a number of years, and um, that really has done amazing work with men. Uh, particularly struggling struggling men and issues around toxic masculinity around um, you know these issues of what is it to be a man and how do we actually step into that warrior energy of our of our maleness um, but my advice is you know my journey is not anyone else's something worked for me that may not work for someone else I would just say to say to anyone connect to that intimate part of you that knows your truth and then find the people who are doing that who are practicing that whatever it may be you know i know people for whom that truth has been martial arts 
I know people for whom it has been Buddhism, for whom it has been Christianity, for whom it has been men's work, for whom it has been an amalgamation of all of these different things and more. Um, but it really starts with someone identifying their truth and then finding that tribe of people who are practicing what it is that you need to find. It, I'm going to put you on the spot just really quick. And I, and if you don't have it, you don't have it. But if you were to sum up what that desire or truth is for you in a sentence, you know, can you do that? Do you, are you that clear about that? Or are you still kind of working it out? Um, I think I'm always going to be working it out, but really it's, um, it's to be intimate with myself and the world around me to see myself clearly as clearly as I possibly can. Wow. That's so beautiful. So well said. And, um, Man, your answer uh, to the question of what what's next for a guy, like what should they do next, is beautiful. I love that. That is that is right in line with everything we've been hoping to hear and achieve and help point people to uh, with the purpose of our podcast. Richard, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real gift. Thank you for sharing vulnerably your story. Um, uh, I'm, I'm knowing what you're writing, I'm looking forward to this book coming out, and I'm looking forward to reading more and participating with you in that. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm I'm insanely grateful and in turn grateful to um, uh, Inside Circle and everyone else who helped facilitate that journey for you. And I was thinking, uh, what's the gentleman's name who started that organization? Uh, Pat Nolan, is that right? Pat Nolan. So we we really have him to thank in a lot of ways. And uh, <laughs> amazing dude, because that man is. Uh, hit it, you know, he's, he is impacting untold amounts of people for untold generations. And that's why we start the healing journey. And that's why we share what we're doing in our healing journey for everyone, uh, because we don't know how long that's going to ripple throughout history. Um, thank you, Richard, man, you, what a gift looking forward to more conversations in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah. thank you for for walking alongside of me for uh, for part of this. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, man. We'll see you in a week, right? The next writing yeah. group. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, absolutely. man. All right. Take care of yourself. Welcome to the Cutting for Sign Field Dressing. Today, we interview Richard Hubbard, uh, the first monk, ex-monk that I've ever had. To do that, the pleasure of getting to sit down and talk to you. <laughs> Zen monk, you anyway, become Buddhist a, monk. Do you, do you lose your monkhood when you leave the monastery? Is that how it works? I, it's it's got to be like a gang. Like once you're a monk, you're always a monk. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, you know? I mean, it's, it's funny because if you're a... Bl- yeah, go ahead. I mean, I mean, he's sitting there. He looks monk-like. He's got no hair. He's he, he's like really <laughs> regal looking in his like sweater when we were speaking to him. And I was like, and then of course he's super wise, so he starts to break things down. I was like, oh, I'm listening to a monk right now, like that, like <laughs> I'm listening to the sage, like I'm leaning in and and wondering what he's going to say next and the bits of wisdom he's going to drop on us. Uh, that was cool. That was a really good story, man. Yeah, really cool. hearing about his time. Yeah, what, what were your? What did you think, man? Well, you know, one of the things he kind of glossed over, and I, but was in the back of my mind. And if you're listening to this and didn't catch it, like like he had, he struggled with with uh, substance abuse in his twenties, and that's what led. Yeah, of course, he did because he had such a shitty childhood. And when you when you don't have the tools, you're going to look for anything you can to help 
numb the pain, separate yourself from the pain, yeah. heal the pain. You don't know what you're doing. You're just trying to get away from it, trying to make it be different. And and he boldly found this the, at 27 years old the monastery and, and decided to, to practice, like really give himself over to the effort and discipline of that. You know, when he gave me his information, I know he'd be okay with me sharing this because he gave me <laughs> he gave me uh, the information to put into his intro, but we didn't talk about it, and I didn't include it in the intro. Um, but he said that his folks were pretty deep into drugs um, at doing and and I believe selling. I don't want to get too far, but they were they had they had a, a life in that world. And then that his near death experience that we also didn't talk about was because of a drug deal gone bad. So he was, he's got a whole nother life that we didn't touch on at all. Um, outside of, yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what kind of you and I are really lucky to get to read his material before for the general public will, uh, with it being in the writing. I keep program. waiting for him to get to and... this stuff, you know, you know what I mean? I was even asking him about it. I was like, well, wind yeah, it up, man. Yeah, Let's see. And yeah. then he dropped a couple of them, like the machete thing. I was like, okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Dude, that's intense. That is a very intense <laughs> situation. Oh my gosh. Um, what was beautiful was his, I mean, there was a lot of beautiful things. One thing that I'm really remembering is is him going through that bout of pain, uh, which I which thankfully I've never been through, and then that soul hunger he had, like, what's next for my life? Like, what am I going to do next? What am I going to step into next? And him finding that, which I think the universe does yeah. for us, dropping those little things and opening some little door, noticing that little. word on the wall or you movie or whatever it is and he and he saw he felt it and he did something about it and uh, you know who knows how long it was before he was on the airplane going to san francisco but what a gift to him right to then go into that room and then see the same faces that he saw in that film that's the the real deal uh, right work you know yeah um gosh you know, even even that moment, that's like the moment where he's like, holy shit, you know, I'm on the right path. You know, like, bro, this is bro, it. I got I, I got a decent story actually where I had a similar experience. Uh it, but it's it mm. it doesn't involve trauma or anything. It's just a it's it's dance. Yeah. And I was getting into dance mm. in 2015 and I'd gotten out of a, a marriage and I just like had this upwelling and resurgence of this desire and love for dance that had kind of gone dormant during my marriage, sadly. And so I start looking up blues dancing. I love swing, jazz and blues dancing, swing and, and blues dancing. And so I'm just looking up, you know, YouTube videos. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where there's blues dancing in Portland or where I, I don't know anything about it. And the first thing I find online is this YouTube video of this couple dancing in this really cool ballroom. It had like this incredible lighting and this, well, it doesn't matter. It was just a really cool looking ballroom. And I yeah. must have watched that freaking blues dance video 20 or 30 times, you know? 
So uh, then I'd start putting the pieces together and I find where there's blues dancing in um, Portland and then I get into it and I'm swing dancing and blues dance. I'm dancing like five nights a week, taking lessons. And then uh, my, I have an instructor, we fall in love. Like my dance instructor falls in love and she's an international blues dancing teacher. Right. And jazz dancing teacher. Wow. And she's amazing. Yeah. And then we got start going all over the world. She takes me, I had teaching experience in martial arts. So I was kind of picking up dance, like dance quickly. And I started teaching or assisting her teaching. And I mean, mm-hmm. we're going everywhere, all these places in Europe and all the United States. It's like a fairy tale. Right. And then we're in Denver doing a, a she's teaching a whole, a, like a week long intensive and we're going to a dance where she, where she's going to teach and I'm going to assist her. And we walk into the dance, into the ballroom, and we're the teachers. And it's that, it's that ballroom from the, that okay. I watched 20 or 30 times, the very first thing. It's the same lighting. It's the same angle. It's the same everything. But we're oh my God. sitting at the center teaching. And I was like, yeah. Holy shit, man. This is my life. <laughs> well, you know, it's just one of those. I got it. I was like, yeah, man, it was great. Obviously, Richard's feeling something different when he shows up and it's the whole cast in the movie. But it's the same thing, man. That's cutting. From- uh, it's got to be pretty similar. To, I mean, in some ways, like, oh, I, like, I'm I'm, I'm here. I've done it. That's yeah. that's so cool. Yeah. And then and then he's he's gone on just like you. I mean, like, he's he is teaching others how to do this. He's going into it getting in the trenches with them it's fascinating it's it's necessary i love that um that this is becoming more common for men to work on their emotional mental spiritual side to to call out the abuse the trauma the neglect the things that we don't even know how to put words to uh but we know that are affecting us on on some level and and I think if you're listening to this, you're dealing with any of that stuff. Like this is your sign, buddy, to do something about it. And I and I and and you know when I asked like cramming signs down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I asked uh, I asked Richard, I was like, what would you say for the person to do? I loved his answer, which is, which would that's what I was like felt like I was around an actual wise monk was he goes, you know, find what's closest to you, and find what speaks to you. And, and he said for, you know, cause I, I know people who that's been helpful, uh, or, um, Buddhism has been helpful. I know uh, folks that martial arts has been helpful. I know folks that Christianity has been helpful. You know, he didn't say there is a path. Here is the path A, B, and C, and it's going to unlock for you. He said, essentially now I'm paraphrasing, like do what lights you up, do what, where, find where your bliss is find what makes sense to your intuition to your heart to your gut follow your gut feeling and and yeah. go to someone or something that is close to you familiar and safe um and, and that's hard man because it's like yeah. okay follow your gut well i don't know what my gut sounds like you know what i mean like a person might be thinking that and so well, then i'll give you an example it is hard but i'll give you a real example like when i knew i needed to quit drinking i didn't know what to do so I sent yeah. a text message to a friend of mine. Yeah. Hey, can yeah. we talk? Sure. We get, we have breakfast. And he, and like, he was like, you know, he looked at me. He's like, have you tried AA? You know, it's just like this shrug, like, you know, and like, he's, he didn't know. And I was like, fuck, I'll do whatever. Okay, sure. I'll give it a shot. And I called, I texted someone else who I did know was in AA. You know, the next morning I'm in a meeting with him. Utterly life-changing. 
you know? And so it's <laughs> like often it just starts with a text to somebody or, or the smallest and most innocuous conversations. I totally agree, man. It's the, it's like the smallest little step can lead very quickly to life-changing actions and doors flying open, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's all, it almost, for me, it almost seems like every time I do, I make the right move, it comes from some feeling that's in the periphery, you know? Yeah. Okay. For you, it came from like, I'm staring at you in your face, you know? But like, I don't, and I don't know, it comes in all kinds of different ways. But my point is, is that it's like something that you've known you needed to do for a long time. And then and and it's the easiest thing in the world to not do it. Yeah. You have maybe you don't even have any reason to do it other than you know you should and you had this feeling but then when you do do it oh my gosh then it becomes like I sometimes it, it becomes almost like you can't believe you waited so long. You know? yeah. uh, well, the, you and I talk about it all the time that's writing for me right now and I think I think you'd say the same thing for you. It's like yeah, we stepped cool. into this and just opportunity after opportunity of perfecting our craft is coming up and and exercising it and and it's life-giving. The the process of is life-giving. It's therapeutic. It's it's uh healing. It's joy. It's bliss. <laughs> but at the beginning, it's the easiest thing not to do. It's it's way easier not to write. It's all I've seen it in you like almost even more clearly than in my own experience with this writing thing. Um, this writing by writing thing, I mean us having writing projects we've wanted to work on or have been working on for a long time, but have put off not put off, but we haven't been for yeah. years. And then and then we you know, I made a phone call. That phone call led to a writing group being created pretty quickly and, yeah. and one that actually has legs and you're, you know, you're part of it. You're one of the people I called to see if you want to do it. And, you know, and then, you know, smash cut six weeks later, five, four weeks later, you know, it's like yours in my light. It was such a huge missing piece or, yeah. or an, uh, a thirsty plant in the garden of, you know, of our like soul. And it yeah. just has, it it has taken the water that we've been throwing on it and just come back to life and, yeah. and brought shade and, and joy and, and hopefully fruits, you know, it's just, yeah. it's so cool how fast things can change. This is my point. That's beautiful, man. Uh, we get to do this and that's another good, awesome thing. The same thing. I mean, you and I have followed, followed the little clues in the past for this podcast and, and it just keeps getting better. Like every time we do one, I'm like, that was the best one. <laughs> and then we do another one. I'm like, well, I, maybe that was the best one. I don't know. But every, I do know a... every time, like, <laughs> shit, this is so good. I mean, that, when we Let's have a the... shitty one. <laughs> we'll record just up. to keep us honest, you know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it like a terrible one. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, man. Man, it's a gift to get to do this with you, Daniel. Appreciate you. Good love you. Same way. I love you, brother. Best. All right. See you. All right, man. See you.